Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, page 1558 in our Pew Bible. This is a familiar passage. This is a passage uh, that you've heard read. Um, so what you hear won't be new. Uh, this is just the simplicity of the gospel. Uh, I would also encourage you, uh, even after we've read it through one time, keep your Bibles open. Continue looking. Continue uh, thinking through what's being said up here. My challenge to you, uh, the responsibility of interpreting Scripture, yes, is that of a pastor, but it's the job of a Christian. So be thinking through these things. Uh, reading the Bible isn't just something we do on Sundays. It's something we do every day. Um, so let's read God's word together. Matthew chapter 5, we'll start in verse 1, and we'll go through verse 12. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called Sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of things evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that by the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, you will make it clear to us. We pray that you would do so. That as we approach your word, uh, we would do so humbly, uh, submitting ourselves to it. Father, I pray that you would um, get anything incorrect, get me and my selfishness out of the way, uh, and that your church and your people would hear the words that you have for them. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. What is the happy life? What is the good life? We have to think about the good life as getting what we think we want. Uh, early in life, it might be a truck. The truck. It might be getting into a certain college. It might be marrying that certain person. As time goes on, it might be having successful children. It, it doesn't hurt if they're the quarterback of a state championship team or something like that. You know, We want those things that we think bring immediate happiness. But as after some maturing, we see that the good life may be something more like being a well-respected member of the community, being financially wise, retiring well, working hard so that our kids can be happy and have what they need, and maybe some of the things that they want as well. That's a little bit more of a long-term pursuit of happiness. And we see that in our prayers. When we ask God to bless us, we usually mean money, or health, or comfort, or safety. Those are the things we pray for. But here in these verses, Jesus points his disciples and us towards eternal happiness and blessing. Pursuit of, the pursuit of happiness on this earth is not bad, but it's incomplete. It will leave you looking for more. 
The kind of blessing that Jesus presents here, they're kind of counterintuitive. They're unexpected. And they go against the way we usually pray. But he's talking about an eternal blessing. You see, the good life, or with the language of the text, the blessed life, is one of salvation and transformation. Communion with God. And becoming like His Son, Jesus Christ. Becoming more and more made into His likeness. So let's jump in. The book of Matthew is structured uh, in big segments that give instructions for future disciples. It's broken into five essentially big sections, and this is the first one. In chapter 4, if you look beforehand, uh, first you have the temptation of Jesus Christ, Jesus being tempted. Then he calls the disciples. And then in verse 25 of, verse, of chapter 4, it said, Great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. So essentially it's saying people from all over came to hear Jesus. And this is the Sermon on the Mount. So at the very beginning we see that he uh, climbs, he is on a mountainside and he teaches his disciples. Now, these are some of Jesus' most famous words. And there are countless examples through history of how people have been transformed by these simple statements. First of all, they provide peace for the Christian life, but also they call the Christian on how to live. Now, I remind you, this is not what most people expect when they talk about the blessed life or blessing. So I want you to keep that in mind. So if you look at the text, we're going to focus on verses 3 through 12 especially. And there's a word that's repeated constantly, and that word is blessing or blessed. If you look at John 12, sorry, not John 12, Genesis, (laughs) Genesis 12, when Abraham is called, God says, you've been blessed to be a blessing. In Psalm 32, it says, blessed is is the one whose transgression is forgiven, those whose sins are covered. Psalm 84 said, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Psalm 119, 1 and 2 said, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. John chapter 13 talks about, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Luke 11 said, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep those commandments. John 20 says, If you believed, you believed because you have seen me, blessed are those who have not seen and yet Believe. Most of the time we use the word blessed, it has more to do with what we have, the things that we've received, rather than worship or God's glory. However, the entire biblical story points to an everlasting image, a blessing. Not blessing just in a temporary, short-term sense, but everlasting. It points towards worship, communion with God, living a life that he would have us live. So, what is it, or who is it, that's blessed? If you look at the text, there's eight different sections. He says, blessed are eight different times. Um, This sermon is going to be strange, because it's an eight-point sermon. (laughs) But, the way I want us to look is we're going to look at each of those sections twice. Because I want us to think, first of all, who is he calling blessed? But then I also want us to think about, so it's the characteristic of blessing. But what is that? What is that result? And what is Christ describing? How is he calling us to live? So first of all, he says, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now Christ is contrasting the Christian life with what the world said, says, which is oftentimes blessed and happy are the rich. That's what most people expect. But here he says the poor in spirit. But money is not the point. But those who feel the weight of an impoverished life. 
throughout, throughout history, most of the church has interpreted this as, as pride is what he's working against. And, and those who are poor in spirit are those who are humble. And it refers to those who recognize their absolute need for help. I want you to think of Luke 18. There's a parable. Uh, there's, there's a man. There's two men praying. And you have a sinner, a tax collector, who realizes the depths of his sin. And the way he prays is he goes over to his corner, he beats his chest, and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Blessed are those who realize the depth of their sin. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Then it says, blessed are those who mourn. Now, grief is very real, and yet Jesus says that we are blessed in the midst of it. Depression is real. And Jesus says that we are blessed in the midst of it. Yes, we should mourn for our sins, but we should also mourn because this life is hard. Parents bury their children. There is constant war, catastrophe. And even just being in the depths of emotional despair that you don't feel able to escape. And yet, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. How can he say that? The next section says, blessed are the meek. Now, someone who is meek is someone we usually think of someone quiet or submissive. But this doesn't mean spineless. But it's the person, and listen carefully, who is more willing to suffer than to inflict injury. Now, I ask you, who's the bigger man? The one who pulls the punch when they're offended? Or the one who defends their honor through self-control? Think of the ultimate example of Christ. He was hanging there on the cross. You had people heckling as they go by. What do they say? He could save others, but he can't save himself. (laughs) There he is on the cross. He could have come down. He could have done it. He could have proved to them. Instead, he stayed on that cross. Why? For you and for me. He was more willing to suffer than to inflict injury. Blessed are the meek. It goes on to say, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I ask you, have you ever been hungry? I mean really hungry, not like 16-year-olds all the time. But have you ever been really, really hungry? Much like the poor in spirit, this includes the person who recognizes their need. That's all you can think about. We need to recognize that we are sinners, first of all, desperately in need of Christ, looking to his death on the cross. But we also need to recognize that we are sinners in need, in desperate need of a transformed life. The idea is when, when we realize that we need Christ, we realize, I cannot live like this. I cannot say that Christ is mine and continue to live this way in, in anger, in selfishness, uh, being an absent father, uh, constantly worrying. This is not what should characterize me. I belong to Christ. Those who hunger and thirst pursue with all of their being righteousness. Can you say that about your need for Christ? Can you say that you desire to live more and more like him every day? Is that all you think about it? Do you think about it at all? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The next verse says, Blessed are those who are, blessed are the merciful. Mercy is a fruit of the Spirit. You'll find that in Galatians 5. But mercy is not giving, sorry, is not given to those what they earned or deserved. But like the meek, mercy is also uh, not giving the punishment that sometimes people deserve or giving the good that someone does not deserve. Now, if you think about the parable of the unmerciful servant, in Matthew chapter 18, you have this, uh, this king uh, and this servant. And the servant owes the king oh, an insane amount of money. 
Uh, and so the king realizes the servant can't pay it back, and the king forgives him his debt. That servant walks out and elated, overjoyed. I've been forgiven. This is amazing. Sees his friend that owes him $5, says, give me my $5 back. The other man says, I don't have your $5. I'm sorry. Give me more time. He says, no, forget it. Put him in jail. Has him thrown in jail. The king finds out. I just forgave this, this servant, and the servant isn't willing to, to, to forgive his other servant. And the, at the end of that parable, what he says is, show mercy because you have been shown mercy. This is about the transformed life, the salvation of others, giving people what they don't deserve in a good way. Blessed are the merciful. It goes on to say, blessed are the pure in heart. Like the poor in spirit, pure in heart refers to internal purity more than what people see. In Psalm 24, verses 3 through 4, uh, the psalmist asks, Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has a clean hands and a pure heart. This is not about sincerity. A person can be sincere and unfortunately wrong. Those who worship God in spirit and in truth, John 4, 24 says, seek to worship God by His rules, not their own. Since the Old Testament, you see that God demands pure worship. Throughout the Pentateuch, those first five books, especially the book of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you see this focus on the purity of worship. How can we do that? I sure don't have it. Calling myself pure would be a lie. After David's sin, he does something absolutely terrible. He's a man after God's own heart, but then he, he's supposed to go to war, and then he doesn't. Uh, and then he sees a woman who happens to be one of his best friend's uh, wives and uh, sleeps with her, and then he has that friend killed. Uh, and not least of all, uh, he thinks he got away with it. But God points to his sin, sends the prophet Nathan, shows him his sin. And David not only realizes that he's done wrong, but deeply repents. He turns around and realizes the depths of his sin. And in Psalm 51 is, sort of the, is, is where he describes how he feels when he's repenting. And he begs God for forgiveness. And this is what he says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. A pure heart starts by recognizing our filth and our need for he who cleanses it. You see, the life of purity is a life that conforms to an inner reality. You belong to God. You have been made clean. But also life of purity is not afraid to admit when they were wrong. Is not afraid to beg God for forgiveness and saying, I'm sorry. Change me. Blessed are the pure in heart. Then it goes on to say, blessed are the peacemakers. Again, here you have one of the fruits of the Spirit. But first this refers to the peace of God, those who pursue union with Christ, fellowship with the God of the universe, rather than remaining opposed to God. You see, God has called us back to himself. Though we were separated from him, he has brought us back together. But think about the word peace in relation to God. What is it that Jesus is called? In Luke 19, it says that he is the prince of peace. In Ephesians chapter 6, the gospel that we talk about is called the gospel of peace. Every time, almost every time that Paul opens a letter, he talks about, may the God of peace, and also in, his, in the closing of his letters. You see, it characterizes how we know God. In John 14, he says, peace I live you, leave you, my peace I give you, but I do not give it as the world. Think about how many people pick fights. Think about it. In the political sphere, in the social media. Ooh, there's a good one. Celebrities, news anchors, etc. Causing strife is one of the best ways to get attention. And yet, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. 
Lastly, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. I'm going to tell you a story that few people know. I just learned it last year. Uh, in the second century, there was a woman named Perpetua who lived in the city of Carthage. Uh, so northern Africa. Uh, she'd just become a Christian. She was going through the new members class, so to speak. Um, and all of a sudden, it became illegal to become a Christian. She was arrested. She was thrown in prison. She hadn't even joined the church yet. Remember that. And they told her, just deny your faith. She said, no, I can't deny my Savior. Her father came in to the prison and begged her, please, just, for, just say that you're not a Christian and they'll let you go. Please. She said, no, I cannot do that. Not only so, she had a child when she was in prison. They took the child away from her. They said, for the sake of your son, renounce your Savior. And she said, the greatest gift that I can give that child is a steadfast faith. There are so many Christians who have died throughout history. Did you know that in twice as many Christians died for their faith in 2013 than in 2012? 2,123 people died for their faith. That's just the record that we have in 2013. The list includes, but this list that he gives includes insults, persecution, slander against those who persecute righteousness. This is a life adhering to Christ. You see, most people feel persecuted. Sometimes if you're driving sleepy and you, know, you realize it and someone honks on their head, what are you doing? I'm sorry, I'm sleepy. Or you have a short temper. Or the middle child. My wife, Teresa, she's a middle child. And so we give her a hard time. Sometimes she feels persecuted like the world is trying to get her. She's the middle child. I say, come on. It's just because you're a middle child. But sometimes we feel that. We feel like we're being persecuted. We often feel the victim. But are you persecuted, mocked, etc.? Because you follow Christ. Wholesale. That's what he's talking about. Not just feeling like people are against us. But is it because you're following Christ? Is it because you won't join in the gossip? Is it because you won't mock the weird kid in the cafeteria? Or because you won't be alone with your boyfriend or girlfriend in their college dorm? Is that why people are mocking you? Or is it because you believe in God at all in today's world? Is that why people are mocking you? You know, to, to several martyrs, there's, there's record of, of someone being told, will you deny your faith? And you know what their response was? I can't do that. He means everything to me. He is my reason for living. Satan is described as a roaring lion. Whether it's in actual physical persecution or through temptation. Persecution is real. And yet Christ says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Each one of these characteristics was personified by Christ himself. He came to bring peace between God and man. He lived a perfect, a pure life in our stead. He was meek in death. He mourned deeply during his life. And he is acquainted with with our grief. If there is a shadow of these in our lives, it is because Christ did it first. Blessed. But, what is the reason for this blessing? In each of these phrases, you'll notice that it says, blessed are the blank for something else. So what is that reason? If you go back to verse 3, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what is the kingdom of heaven? This phrase actually only appears in the book of Matthew. But it appears so many times. Elsewhere, it's described as the kingdom of God. In Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist says, when Jesus is, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Later on, Jesus is telling uh, um, parables. I forgot the word. Uh, He's teaching parables, and he says, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like the sower sowing his seed. In in both verses 3 and verse 10 of this section, The poor in spirit and the persecuted are the people who are part of the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, why is it good to be poor in the Spirit? It's because we're made a part of something so much greater than we are. We're blessed with a poverty of immeasurable wealth that cannot be taken away in this world and that lasts forever. Your need for Christ brings you into His kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to say, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Christ doesn't say, because their grief is temporary. Christ doesn't say, uh, just they're overreacting and they need to get over it, get a grip. He doesn't say that. I feel like that's oftentimes how I treat grief. Come on, get over it, John. But that's not what Christ says at all. Rather, they will be comforted. There's a famous pastor uh, in the 19th century, near the end of the 19th century. His name was Charles Spurgeon. And he struggled with what he called melancholy, which is essentially the Puritan word for depression. And this is what he says about himself, a pastor, a pastor who brought thousands to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is what he says. Depression comes over me whenever the Lord is preparing my ministry. The cloud of black before it breaks and overshadows before it yields its deluge of mercy. These infirmities may have even been imposed on me by divine wisdom as a necessary qualification for my peculiar course of service. You see, serving, helping, parenting for Christ brings such discouragement and despair sometimes. Serving the church is hard. Being a parent is hard. Being a spouse is hard. But Christ says we are blessed when we mourn because we will be comforted. And that is a promise. This life will not last forever. And we have a Savior who shared in our experiences. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, it says, for they will inherit the earth. Uh, in a commentary, John Calvin, which I need to pause here, uh, six years ago, the Sunday school class that used to meet downstairs gave me Calvin's commentaries, and they're still being put into use. So for those of you who are there, thank you. But John Calvin, uh, in reference to this verse, he uses the familiar proverb, and he said he, he's looking down on this familiar proverb, but this is how most people think. We must howl with the wolves because the wolves will immediately devour everyone who makes himself a sheep. To show that most people think meekness equals weakness. For a man kicked out of Geneva twice in his efforts to transform the city, and whose writings either inspire or enrage people still today, he was anything but meek. However, he shows that you must be a sheep if we wish to be reckoned as part of his flock. And following the example of Christ, we need to be, remember the definition, more willing to suffer than to inflict injury. We are emulating the greater love hath no man than he that lays down his life for his friends. That Jesus exemplified. Now, this may not be the way most people climb the corporate ladder, or that most people get into a PhD program, or that most people treat that kid, that punk who's just running his mouth. But Christians rest on the eternal inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Because they will be filled. How do you train your affections, your will, what you desire? What are the things that you want? And how do you cultivate those desires? You know, in a classroom, uh, when you're a teacher, there's sort of three different kinds of children. The first one just doesn't want to be there. 
There's plenty of kids who are staring right out the window, and all they're thinking about is they're counting down the seconds. There's a second kind of child who wants to please the teacher and get good grades. And a lot of times, those are kind of the children that we appeal to. But there's a third kind of child. Those who experience the feeling and the accomplishment of true learning. I want you to think about your hobbies, your specialty, maybe even your job. How did you come to love that thing? It's because someone showed you and showed you just the inspiration of discovery. The thrill of whatever it is. That's what it's calling us to. That's what true learning is. Do you train your affections? What you want? Do you want to want what Christ wants? Are you actively praying that God would, have, would give you the desires of those things that he wants? And do you feel a sense of true joy when you, when you want to tell someone about Jesus? When you lose a night's sleep because you're praying for your children, does that give you joy? When you apologize to your spouse, because to be honest, you're not prone to forgive, does that give you joy? You see, blessed are those who recognize their mistakes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Train your affections. Change life. Getting good at something doesn't just happen by standing back passively. Work at it. All the while realizing that it is Christ who's giving you those desires, who's giving you the strength, who's giving you those opportunities for growth. Then it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. First, we should show mercy because we've been shown mercy. Luke 6 says that. But think about the Lord's Prayer. What is it that we say? Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Have you? Mercy can give unexpected results. But there are also different ways to show mercy. One of the ways is through forgiveness. What does Christ say? How many times did you forgive? Seven times? Jesus says no. Seventy times seven. That person doesn't deserve forgiveness. That's why it's called mercy. Or think about mercy as discipline. Do you realize that when you discipline your children, and when you're consistent, and when you take the time to do it correctly, and to explain why it is that you're disciplining, not just because you're annoyed, which happens to me all the time, but actually you're trying to shape a person who would follow after God, train up a child in the admonition of the Lord. Consistency shows them that they are worth your time, and sometimes apologizing to them, and showing them how to fail gracefully, and picking yourself back up again, begging their forgiveness. Asking God for direction, guidance in your parenting. Mercy through discipline. I think about mercy and the effort that you put into it. Mr. Rowe, he's my father-in-law. He's also one of my heroes. He trained up his daughter well. Um, But Christmas about two years ago, three years ago, um, the whole family was finally together. There's one son that's in the military. Another family lived in Washington. So there's nothing short of a miracle that we're all in the same house on Christmas Day. About 10.30 that morning, in the middle of presents and paper flying everywhere, he got a call from a man who had just gone through the divorce, and he realized that day he was expecting to be able to see his children, and he hadn't seen them for over three weeks. And it was Christmas Day. He didn't know who to call, so he called Mr. Rowe. So Mr. Rowe and I climbed into the truck. I drove over there, uh, and seeing a grown man sob is so hard. Uh, he'd been a man who had been in the military, and was really struggling uh, to come back to his family. And so he was going through a divorce. 
And Mr. Rowe talked with him. We found out he hadn't eaten in several days. He'd just been really, really down. So we said, come on. We went to Waffle House. Waffle House on Christmas Day is something else. Tell you what. Um, we, had, we, we ate with him, and we talked about anything else, just trying to get his mind off of it. And right before we left to go back to the house, Mr. Rowe reminded me, he said, just re- realize this day is hard, but this isn't all there is. You need to be there for your sons for next Christmas. And that man looks back to that Christmas day and constantly tells Mr. Rowe, thank you, because he honestly says, I don't know if I would have made it through that day if not for you. Now, Mr. Rowe got an earful when he got home. You better believe it. It's Christmas Day. He walked out. Whew. Um, but I saw where he was, and I saw what he was doing. Blessed are the merciful and the effort they give. Elders, deacons, you are called to put in the effort. But friends, Christians, we are people of God. We are called to effort, to show mercy. Why? Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. You see, throughout the Old Testament, the people were separated from God. In Exodus 34, Moses actually had to put a veil over his face after he'd gone to see, to, after he had come back from seeing God. But then in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, We're not like Moses, who have to put a veil over our faces. We, with unveiled faces, reflect the Lord's glory and are being transformed to him, into his likeness in everlasting glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Or then if you think about the tabernacle, in the tabernacle or the temple, there was the holy place and the most holy place. And only, uh, only the high priest could go, and it was only once per year, and it was just the presence of God was something where you just didn't go near. But what happened at the death of Christ? That curtain was torn. And what does Hebrews 4, 6 says? We approach the throne of grace boldly, with confidence, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Think about the benediction that we say at the end of most services. May his face shine upon you. Have you ever thought about what that means? His face, God's face. Psalm 105 says, seek his face daily. We've been cleaned, and so we can experience what people in the Old Testament only dreamed of. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will seek God. They will see God. Do you seek God on a daily basis? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Adoption is absolutely beautiful. It's a promise, no matter what. Even though we have different genes, I will love you, no matter what, through what, forever. That's what adoption is. Your genetic makeup is not compatible with the God of the universe. And yet he made peace with us, Romans 5. And if you accept the terms of peace, which is just through Christ alone, not only are you forgiven of your actions, but you are changed. And you are brought into the family of God and made co-heirs with Christ, Romans 8 says. Sons of God. Who is called sons of God? Peacemakers. The, I just wrote a 84-page paper. Yeah. I did it on Friday. You know what it was about? It was about the peace of the church. The unity of the church. There's a man named Irenaeus uh, who lived in the 2nd century. And there was several big churches who were having a big disagreement. One of them wanted to celebrate uh, Easter on a Saturday because that's when Passover was. And the other group wanted to celebrate on a Sunday, because that's when Jesus rose from the dead. And they were fighting, and they wrote letters to each other. And one, one pastor wanted to excommunicate the other, and there was, ooh, tension. You better believe it. And this wasn't the first time this argument had happened. And this man, Irenaeus, comes forward, and he says, you know what? 
Though we disagree, we find unity in our disagreement. You know why? Because of what is it that we care about? We care about the resurrection. We care about worshiping God. And so he says, we find unity amidst disagreement. And the author of Eusebius, he says, and he lived up to his name. Do you know what the word, the name Irene or Irenaeus points back to? It actually means peace. Irene means peace in Greek. That's what he was named for. He says he lived up to his name. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Because of that letter that he wrote, calling each different people to unity, um, nobody excommunicated each other. Historically. Last one. Blessed are the peace. Sorry. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Another story. The the guy who actually taught this man Irenaeus was a man named Polycarp. Now the reason I talk about Polycarp is because I was taught about Polycarp from somebody in this church. Mr. Digborough, he pointed him out to me one time. Uh, Polycarp was a disciple of John. So John the Apostle uh, taught Polycarp. And Polycarp dedicated his life to teaching the the church. He prioritized his life for the kingdom of heaven. He was a lifelong shepherd of the church. He lived to die daily. And he, in the end of his life, he suffered for life, in life and in death. At the end of his life, they asked him to deny Christ. They said, just think about your old age. You could retire. This could be it. You know what his answer was? Four score. And six years, so essentially 86 years, have I served him, and he has never done me injury. How can I now blaspheme my king and my savior? He was a shepherd of the church through life and through death. He lived to die daily, to take up his cross, and then he died for Christ. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'll be honest, this list gives me despair. I can't even remember all the different things on the list, never mind do them, which should do something very special for all of us. It should point our eyes to Christ who did it for me. You see, I pray these familiar words would fill us with an unsatiable desire. Number one, to look to Christ and to seek his face daily. Many of these challenges don't make sense if you only live for this life, if you only live for the now. But Christ calls us to live and to live abundantly. See, this life, what it's called is to imitate Christ in our life by dying daily to ourselves, seeking mercy, meekness, forgiveness, hungering for righteousness. These do not come about naturally. But I pray that God would give us the desire to really want to be more like Him. Conviction, and to feel conviction when they don't rule over our lives. My prayer is that our children, that our spouses, our neighbors, even our enemies, yes, our enemies, would be able to call us blessed because they know that we do not live for this life but for the good life in the eternal sense. We don't just live for the now but making an eternal investment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day and I thank you for your word and I thank you for the reminders of what it means to live a blessed life. First of all, Father, I pray that you would shape our prayers, that you would shape our desires. Pray that you change our hearts. Thank you that Christ fulfilled the law for us. God, I pray that when people look at us, that when people look at our lives, they would see you. God, call us to forgive one another in true forgiveness because you forgave us. Call us to love one another in the church, but also to love those outside the church, that the world may know that we are yours. Thank you.
that you call us to a blessed life. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.